The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 1 this morning. Wonderful truth, and I almost feel bad like we've sung all these just wonderful, hopeful, positive songs about the gospel, and we're not exactly going to be in a super positive Go lucky, happy text this morning, but uh, that's where God has us, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, be a help. Our, our text for today is uh, Romans one, uh, twenty-four to twenty-seven, but I want to read uh, beginning in verse eighteen just to set the context uh, for where we're going to be. Verse eighteen says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness." Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. I imagine unless you've been hiding under a rock, you've probably noticed all the boasting this month about sexual pride. And it's everywhere. You know, the rainbow is everywhere from business logos to baseball uniforms, and it's communicating a message that would have been foreign to someone just 20 years ago. They would have wondered, like, what in the world is up with all the rainbows everywhere? And our culture has clearly changed rapidly and dramatically. And it's not just that people are celebrating things that were once considered shameful. The revolutionaries are redefining what it means to be human, what it means to love, and how people define ultimate truth and morality. Now, a lot of you in here would look at all of it and you respond by saying, well, it's all just a bunch of nonsense. And they're not going to convince me I won't fall for any of it. And of course, the revolutionaries know that. And so they are content to simply bypass you and indoctrinate your children and your grandchildren with a very compelling and very powerful message. And if we're going to reach our kids in the next generation for Christ and we're going to raise them up to be faithful to God's word, then we have to do a whole lot better than screaming at the revolutionaries or sarcastically mocking them. No more than any other time, probably in our nation's history, we need to know what we believe 
why we believe it, and how to lovingly articulate it for the next generation. And beyond that, I'm sure that there are people in this room who have struggled with some of the things that we're going to discuss today. I would imagine in a room this size, there are people in here who have struggled at times, maybe intensely, with same-sex attraction. Now, maybe you're confused by the competing messages that you're hearing at school or on TV as opposed to what you see in the Scriptures. Or maybe you just think the Bible got it wrong. The Bible is outdated, and we just need to get with the times. But wherever you are, this passage has some very important truth for you. But as always, our first concern is not just to jump to what we're interested in. We want to understand what God's original message was. And so we want to walk carefully through the text. And from there, we'll walk carefully through the application of that text within our context. So let's begin in verse 25 with man's rebellion. So verse 25 summarizes a lot of what we saw last week in verses 18 through 23. And it reaffirms three truths about God that we talked about last week that are foundational to where we're headed. So first of all, the first truth about God we see is that God is the creator. So verse 25 calls God the creator. All right? And verses 19 and 20 we saw last week say that creation clearly reflects God's intelligent design. If someone objectively looks at this universe, the simplest, best explanation of it all is that an intelligent God designed all of it. And that leads to a second very important truth, which is that God demands our worship. Now this is, and this is really important, this is the central issue of verses 18 through 32. So verses 21 and 23 condemn mankind for refusing to honor and worship God. And verse 25 condemns them for worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator. So an important assumption, all right, of verses 18 through 32 is that because God is the creator and the Lord of all things, then we are obligated to worship and serve him. And to do anything less is utterly rebellious. And everything else in this passage flows from that very fact. And as our culture secularizes, it is very important that we emphasize that God is creator and Lord because it is foundational to our faith. You can't grasp the gospel and the implications of the gospel without that fact that we need to emphasize and we need to understand even when, you know, willy-nilly Christianity says otherwise that God does not exist for us. We exist for God. We were made to worship and serve Him. And that leads to a third very important truth, which is that God is good. Now Paul ends verse 25 with a short doxology. He says, at the end of the verse, who is blessed forevermore, amen. And the implication is, is that it is utterly foolish to worship and serve anything other than God. Because God is good. And God gives His people good gifts. He is blessed forevermore, and He blesses abundantly those who serve Him. And again, that's an important truth that we have to believe and emphasize as we teach God's Word. I mean, yes, God's Word includes laws and boundaries, all right? And ever since Genesis chapter 3, Satan has been trying to convince people 
that God's laws and boundaries are inherently oppressive and tyrannical and the enemy of your your well-being. But it's all a terrible lie. To to think that God's laws are inherently oppressive. A good example is traffic laws. Traffic laws are not intended to oppress you, right? They're intended to free all of us to safely and efficiently use the roads. They're a good thing. Without them, the roads would be chaotic and lots of people would die. And in a similar manner, God's law frees us to enjoy life in His blessing and in the wisdom and goodness of His will. And so we have to see through Satan's roots and believe in the goodness of God's will. And we'll say more about that as we go. So verse 25 emphasizes these three foundational truths about God, but it also tragically describes the rebellion of sinners. So notice that verse 25 is built on two foolish and rebellious choices that sinners have made innumerable times throughout history. So first, it says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, the primary lie in context is the lie that idols are gods. All right? But sinners have imagined all sorts of other lies to compete with the truth of God. It could be false religions. It could be godless philosophies and many other things. And they look so appealing at times, so appealing, but but they are all lies, and none of them compare to the truth of God. And then the second exchange he mentions in verse 25 is that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, this one is one that when you look at it this way, it is utterly foolish, right? Like, who would choose to serve a creature instead of worshiping the one that made it? And yet it happens over and over that people choose to worship creation instead of the Creator because the implications of the Creator are ones that we don't always like. Unless we look down our noses at all those fools and morons who are doing this stuff, the reality is is that we all do this one on a smaller scale probably every day of our lives. We prioritize petty, fading passions over God's eternal, holy, and goodwill. And we do not give Him the honor and the worship that He deserves. And I want to emphasize, again, because it's really important to where this passage goes, that this failure to rightly worship God is the fundamental sin of this entire passage, all right? And it's the primary occasion of God's wrath. And that's why, you know, you can see that verse 26 begins with, for this reason. Verse 24, backing up, says, therefore, in response to the foolish choices mentioned in verses 19 through 23. So everything in this passage flows out of a failure to honor and worship God as he deserves. And so as we get ready to discuss sexual rebellion, you might think, well, I'm safe today because I've never done any of that stuff. So, you know, the Holy Spirit's just going to leave me alone today. Well, the reality is, is that all of us, and let me add this too, you know, that we might also look at where we're going in this passage and our response might be just to sit there and get angry and stew about all the, the filth and perversion of our world. And yes, a lot of it's very bad. But we all need to understand that putting anything ahead of God is idolatry. And you can idolize politics, status, hobbies, money, leisure, anything. And the cleanest looking idol is still an idol. And therefore, the most important application of this section 
is that you must honor the Lord as He deserves. So do not let anything take God's place in your heart and your life. Because He is most important. So people consistently rebel, though, against Him by refusing to honor Him as sovereign Lord and therefore notice God's response. Now, verses 24, 26, and 27 all focus on man's rebellion against God's original sexual design. And, of course, that rebellion has taken center stage in our society. And it's a big part of our culture. It's a big part of the messaging this month. And beyond that, you know, even if you just are totally immune to all of that, sexual temptation is a pull on pretty much everyone. And so it's very important that we frame everywhere where we're going this, today by emphasizing, first of all, that God's design for human sexuality is good. And it is for our good. You know, what God made in Genesis 2 was absolutely beautiful. And the way he sets it up, the way he designs it and describes it in Genesis 2 is there to tell us about the goodness of how God designed sexuality. So specifically, think about the fact that You know, in Genesis chapter 1, God made everything, and what does he keep saying over and over? It was very good. So God made a good creation, but then look at what he says in Genesis 2, 18. He looks at Adam and says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So everything else is good, except for Adam being by himself. God says that he was incomplete on multiple levels, of course, He's alone, so he's lonely, but as well, he can't reproduce by himself. And even if he could, he would have been inadequate as a parent all by himself, just like I would be lost if I was trying to parent without my wife. And so God made him a helper suitable for him, is what the text says. Now, that word helper means that she provides what is lacking, all right? So so she provides what is lacking in the word suitable, means that she was corresponding to him. So the idea is, is that she completes him. She fits together. It's not it's that you know, he's the man and you know, she's just down here you know, washing his feet and you know, taking care of him. I mean, she completes him. They are both incomplete apart from each other. So God put them together. I, I like to say that God made us to be married. We are incomplete without a husband or a wife. And God made them, men and women, to complete each other and then to raise children in a lifelong covenant of marriage. And he seals that fact at the end of the chapter by saying in verse 24 that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And folks, we need to emphasize that this design is good. And as much as our culture wants to ignore it, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates That God's design produces the most joy and the most human flourishing compared to any other alternative. I mean, we thrive when we follow God's design and we live in healthy, loving, committed marriages and where children are raised in the same. Now, of course, there's exceptions, right? So God does give some people the gift of celibacy for the purpose of pursuing ministry. You know, and in a fallen world, a lot of people that want to be married never find that perfect person. Or they marry someone that they think is one thing and they turn out to be something else. Or sin tears apart God's good purpose. And a lot of you have been affected by that, right? There are lots of people in here who have been affected by 
divorce, maybe abuse, and all sorts of various things. But none of that changes the ultimate goodness and wisdom of God's design. And to add to that, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that children thrive within God's design. Right down to the detail of the husband being primarily focused on being the breadwinner and the wife being primarily focused on the care of her home and her family. That's because men and women are designed by God differently. We have different strengths and weaknesses, and we bring those together in marriage in a way that completes each other. And when we bring those differing gifts even to parenting, children thrive in that context. Now, of course, that's not to say that God's grace can't overcome broken homes and and the consequences of a fallen world. And again, there are lots of people in here who are testimonies to God's grace, where, where you didn't grow up in a good context, or you're not growing up in the perfect context. And God's grace is able and faithful to carry you through that all. But at the same time, let's also uphold the goodness of God's purpose. So we've got a lot of younger people in here. And I'd say to you, don't be fooled by the narrative of our culture that the best life is the life where you are just chasing your passion, you are free of obligation and responsibility, and you do what just whatever it is that feels good. No. God's design is good. So prepare for and pursue God's design because you will not regret it. God's design is good. So with that framework, you know, return to the narrative, because mankind rebels against God's good purpose, verses 24 and verses 26 and following say that God judges sinners by handing them over to the consequences of their rebellion. Now notice here that verse 24 says, God gave them over, all right? And that's in response to the sins of verses 19 through 23. And then notice that Paul repeats that same phrase in verse 26, He says, for this reason, God gave them over. And then he says it again in verse 28. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So in each case, that phrase describes God's judgment that flows out of his wrath. And it's all rooted in the fact that the Bible teaches that God graciously restrains sinners from being as bad as they otherwise would be. And do you realize that if the full effects of human depravity were not restrained by conscience and by the grace of God, like we think it's bad now, it would be infinitely worse. So God's grace restrains sinners from being as bad as they otherwise would be. However, what Paul is teaching in this passage is that when sinners consistently refuse to honor God, God often judges them by simply removing his restraint and allowing them to pursue their depravity and the consequences that flow out of that depravity. You know, so as such, I've I've heard many Christians over the years say, you know, look at our society and say, God must surely be getting ready to judge us because of how bad things really are. But this passage says that how bad things are is actually the judgment of God for refusing to honor and worship Him as He deserves. You know, it's not that all this sin is going to cause the judgment of God. God says the sin is the judgment of God. And we see it everywhere. 
that our society is increasingly, increasingly plagued with violence, mental disorders, physical and sexual abuse, substance abuse, and all sorts of other horrible things. And when you trace a lot of it back to its roots, much of it can be directly attributed to the breakdown of the family and God's design for the home. And all the other ways that Romans 1 says that people reject God's will. You know, it's not that God is just like ruining people's lives. It's that sin is destroying people and destroying society. And again, God doesn't cause any of it. He just simply leaves people to the natural consequences of their rebellion. And we see time and time again that those consequences are devastating. Absolutely devastating. So once again, you can't improve on God's will. The world can tell you that morality and ethics are oppressive and to express whatever passion arises from your heart. And it's absolute nonsense. It's nonsense. God's way is always the best way. So hold fast to his word. Well, but then notice where man's rebellion ultimately leads him. And let's talk as well today about man's self-degradation. And I see three stages in this passage to man's self-degradation. And the first is, is that sinners pursue unrestrained passion. Now notice the emphasis throughout the text on sinful passions. So verse 24 says, or emphasizes that God gave them over to what? The lusts of their hearts. And then verse 26 mentions that God gave them over to degrading passions. And then uh, verse 27 says that men abandoned the natural function of the woman and then notice, and they burned in their desire towards one another. So the spiral towards destruction begins with people pursuing unrestrained passion. And you know, it is tragic and yet an incredible testimony to the inside of Scripture how perfectly what Paul says here fits the culture in which we live. Um, Pastor Tim and Dustin and I, as part, of, as part of Dustin's internship, we do a weekly reading discussion where we read some chapters and then discuss it. And so we just finished reading a book on uh, the sexual revolution. And, and a quote came up in that book. And the book is an abbreviated book form of a, of a larger one that is designed to explain how the sexual revolution came about. And, and the author, Carl Truman, has this quote, which is very insightful. He says, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings, and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. Such a self is defined by what is called expressive individualism. So what he's saying there is that our culture believes that the authority, that truth comes from your inner feelings, and that morality, the most virtuous thing you can do, is to express the feelings in your heart, and to live out what you naturally desire. That is the gospel of our day. And Sigmund Freud then came along, the book explains, and said that the pinnacle of that self-expression is through sexual passion. He said, and uh, this is a quote by Sigmund Freud, I think I've put this up before, but it really fits here well. He says, man's discovery that sexual or genital love is afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction. 
and in fact provided him with a prototype of all happiness, must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations, and that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. That is an incredible quotation on multiple levels. And for one, it's just creepy, right? But it's hopeless. It's hopeless. I mean, the idea that my life, like the central point of life, is sexual expression. I mean, what what an empty way to live. There is no hope in that. It's sure to disappoint. And yet that is increasingly the gospel of our age. And people believe that expressing and indulging whatever sexual passions arise in their heart is vital to being who they're supposed to be. And if they don't do that, then they are not being true to themselves. You know, it's interesting, as as a side note, in the last couple days since the the, uh, Supreme Court decision came out, all the, you know, how angry people are uh, about the ruling. And I think it's important to recognize that For the most part, it's not that they hate babies. It's not that they hate babies. It's that they believe that their duty as people is to express every sexual passion in their heart and that anything in the world that would stop them from doing that is oppressive and is to be destroyed. So an abortion law stands against the gospel of our age because it resists that self-expression which is supposedly at the heart of who we are. But we have to understand that all of it is a fool's errand. We were made in God's image, and we will only find rest in the presence of God. An erotic living can never equal the lifelong blessing of marriage and other meaningful relationships that grow out of commitment, duty, and self-sacrifice. Our world says commitment, duty, and self-sacrifice are the enemy of our gospel. But they actually are the key to God's favor and God's blessing and the goodness of his will. So God's way will always be better than unrestrained passion. And yet that's what man chases. And that leads to the second stage of the spiral, which is that unrestrained passion produces perversion. Now notice that verses 26 and 27 assume that God has revealed through our bodily makeup what is natural and good, right? So he says in verse 26, their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. So what Paul is assuming there is that nature makes it obvious how the sexual relationship is to be expressed. And we won't do an anatomy lesson today, but I think we can understand how that's the case, right? And as well, we just understand that the only way that people can reproduce and civilization can continue and thrive is for men and women to be together. And of course, the Bible is also clear about this fact. And again, God said from the very beginning in Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God created marriage. God created marriage. And it is his creation. It is good. 
And the Bible teaches that the sexual relationship is, is right and good, that the sexual relationship is a good gift to that relationship that binds it together and allows the marriage to reproduce. It is a good thing in that context, and it is solely for that context. But our text says that when people prioritize passion over truth, they spiral into perversion of God's design. And verses 26 and 27 specifically mention homosexual behavior both among men and among women. And I think that's clear, right? So verse 26, women exchange the natural function, the natural sexual function, for something different. And as well, verse 27 talks about men burning in desire towards each other and forsaking the natural function of the woman to pursue each other. So God is clear here. All right, God is clear here that homosexuality defies the design of God. And verse 27 calls it indecent. Or you could also say shameful. Now some people, some uh, professing Christians would push back by saying that God is only condemning unnatural homosexuality. And so the idea there, uh, or homosexuality by someone who is not born a homosexual. Which is a fascinating reflection of the quotes that I put up earlier. Because the assumption there is who I am is defined by what I feel. It is not defined by my body. So we hear all the time, I was born this way. Or sometimes people will go so far as to say, God made me this way. But we have to understand that 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 distinction between my body and my spirit is a distinction that Paul never would have even considered. I mean, that, that's, that wouldn't have been on Paul's radar. No, in his world, natural means the body and its natural function. So there's simply no room in the biblical ethic for a justifiable homosexual lifestyle. And beyond that, it's not hard to see that we are on very shaky ground When we try to anchor my identity, like who I am as a person, in my feelings. Because feelings are very volatile. Very volatile. And so, I I don't doubt that some people feel same-sex attraction very strongly. I've talked to people like that. I know that that's the case. And, and I think, you know, rather than just looking at people who feel those feelings and, and struggle with that, you know, we, we shouldn't look at them as creeps and weirdos. And we, it really is true that, that a lot of them have dealt with a lot of harsh treatment and jokes. They've lived their whole lives feeling like misfits because they are different from people around them. And so we need to love them, right? And point them to the hope of the gospel and be compassionate towards them. But our society zealously pushes the claim that people's sexual identity is as firm as something like race, right? You know, the the fight for sexual rights, you know, is the new fight, you know, for for civil rights. And and so we often hear, again, we, we hear the phrase, I was born this way, or God made me this way. But I think we understand, hopefully we know, that the genetic science doesn't actually say that that's the case. You know, that it demonstrates instead that environment, life patterns, and experience are major factors that lead people to these alternative lifestyles. 
so I was born this way, is not based in the body or objective study of the body. No, that statement is rooted in the assumption that who I am is fundamentally defined by my feelings, by expressive individualism. And I'm speculating here, all right, this is pure speculation, but I doubt that the I was born this way argument is going to last very long because the rise of transgenderism and then you have the new category of gender fluidity. So actually, like that's now considered a a legitimate claim that gender can be fluid and, and always changing. I mean, those types of concepts are all moving away from objective biology or something objective in me that determines who I am and more and more towards subjective feelings. Expressive individualism, as I said earlier. And none of it is stable. None of it's stable, and it is all a tragic rebellion against the goodness of God's original design. Which brings us to the third stage of the spiral, which is that perversion produces devastation. Notice that verse 27 ends by saying, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, the fundamental error in context is the refusal to worship and honor God as he deserves. So that is the error, and therefore the penalty of refusing to worship God is erotic sexuality and the destructive effects that it has both on the individual and then on those around him and ultimately the society as a whole. And I think we can understand this, that when you reject the stability, love, and the commitments of biblical family, yeah, you may have a good time for a while, but the consequences are drastic. I mean, just think about, you know, I mean, how many people in our society, you know, they're my age, they're 40 years old, and they are not tied to family. You know, so they don't have the obligations that I do every night where where when I get off work, I need to go home and be a husband and a father. So they've got all this free time. So what's it turn into? It turns into destructive leisurely activities. They're gambling. They're in the bars. And you think about where all that leads. And without the commitments of family, people run to, to all sorts of things. You know, marital love. When you are not in a committed marriage and, and enjoying the fruits of that marriage, then it leads to people pursuing all sorts of other sexual pleasure. And casual sex does not lead to a healthy, stable, safe society. It leads to prostitution. It leads to sexual and physical abuse. You know, it leads to all sorts of pressure and chaos which do not make the society stable and safe. It makes it unpredictable and very scary. And we can see the fruits of it all around us. There are a lot of people in our society who are hurting, they are lonely, and they're despairing because their life is not anchored in the goodness of God's design for the family. They don't have anyone. You know, they don't have the security of marriage. You know, so, so when they're going out trying to have casual sex, there's a pressure on them and a, that you don't have when you have a committed marriage. And all these other things. And what's most tragic is all of this is creating an unstable, neglectful environment for many, many children. Now, children desperately need the stability, the love, and the discipline 
that comes from God's design for the home. And yet so many kids are growing up in these unpredictable, radically crazy contexts. They're not being raised by their parents, but they're being raised by the schools and by all these other things because mom and dad have embraced a totally different view of how life is supposed to be and what priorities are supposed to be. And so is it any wonder that so many children in our society are growing up angry, violent, and depressed? I mean, it is an incredible load to bear. You know, I mean, something else that I think is worth adding, you know, I mean, think about too that, like, we are told that your identity, you know, expressive, I mean, doing what's in my heart sounds good. You know, but you're told that you need to create your own identity. Be your own person. You know, cast off the, the weight of church and family and all those things, sources of security and identity, and make your own identity. What a horrible pressure to bear. And so the effects are vast on our society. And no wonder people are suffering and hurting and medicated because we've lost just the the anchor of the biblical home. So the question then is how do we respond to all of it? Well, I'd like to pull all this together into three important conclusions. And the first conclusion is stand unapologetically on God's Word. You know, the world is making a lot of noise on these issues. And they will do everything that they can to intimidate you and to mock God's design. But do not forget that God's design is good. And God, the family, the family is one of God's best gifts to civilization. It is the anchor of everything. So young people, you know, those of you that are still kind of determining the direction of your life and where you're going to go, what you're going to do, you know, embrace the fact that God's design is good for you. And don't buy the world's lies and don't think, you know, either that, that you can just like, you know, mess around, experiment with stuff while you're a teenager and a young adult, and then, you know, maybe in my 30s, I'll, I'll just leave it all behind and suddenly become a committed spouse. No, God made you to be married. So spend this time of your life preparing to be the husband, the father, the wife, the mother that God designed you to be. And be holy. Be satisfied in the Lord and build habits that will enable you to enjoy a lifetime of fulfillment in God's design. It is good. It is good. You know, I, I went to public school. I'm Facebook friends with a lot of the kids I went to high school with. You know, and I was ostracized at times. I was mocked at times. But I would not trade my life today for any of their lives today. My life is way better. Some of them probably got a lot more money than I do. But my life is way better than theirs. So embrace God's design. And if you've strayed from God's design, you found yourself in, caught in some ungodly habits. Yeah, maybe you hear all this and you're just confused. Maybe you're unconvinced of some of what we've said today. Maybe you've got some habits, some struggles that just seem overwhelming to you. And then please get biblical counsel. You know, we would love to sit down with you and we will love you. We will care for you. I promise you, you will not share something with me that will surprise me and shock me because we're sinners. 
and sinners think and do horrible things. So come, get counsel. We'll be confidential with your information, and we will shepherd you to Christ. And I promise you that Christ will be better. He will be better than whatever it is that Satan has grabbed a hold of you with. And then for all of us, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of you in this room, you're, you're walking with the Lord, you're in a good place. I just encourage you, stay faithful to God's word. You might get called a homophobic, which is absurd if you really are being faithful to God's word. You, know, you might be mocked. You might lose relationships. The reality is, someday it might cost you a job. And standing on God's word is going to increasingly push us to the edges of society. But God's word and God's approval is worth any cost. And the world can take a lot of things from you, but it cannot replace the favor and the kindness of God on your life. So determine by God's grace that you will be found faithful. And the second application is teach courageously, carefully, and compassionately. You know, when I was in high school, peer pressure was pretty much enough to keep most teenagers away from this stuff. Like a dad could crack a sarcastic joke, or some friends at school could, you know, could mock you know, some of these things, and, and that was enough. But we have to understand that that is not going to do it anymore. And what's going to happen is if that's your route, you don't know how to talk about these things, so you just crack a sarcastic joke, make sly comments, it may turn against you because you have made yourself someone who is not a trustworthy, caring voice when there are real questions that need to be answered. And so make sure that you parent, you talk in just casual conversation in such a way that when your children or grandchildren or other people in your sphere of influence have questions, that you are someone they want to talk to because they know that you will give a caring, thoughtful, biblical answer. And folks, we have to do better than we have done in the past if we are going to impact the next generation. So work hard to understand the messaging that our culture is selling and that is being directed at your children, sometimes in very subtle ways and sometimes in very black and white ways. But understand the messaging and be prepared to give thoughtful, biblical, compassionate, and age-appropriate answers. And then, finally, maintain a gospel focus. There's no denying the fact that a lot of what is happening in our culture is scary. And it's very easy then to get wrapped up in, well, what do we need to do to fix it? How can we stop the tide of our culture? And then, of course, we pour all of our energy into revolution through debate and political action, or fighting the revolution through debate and political action. And, of course, God has called us to be salt and light. So those things have their place. But don't forget that our primary calling is not to be culture warriors. Our primary calling is to be gospel warriors. And yes, many people in our country are teaching and practicing wickedness. But instead of primarily seeing them as cultural rivals, we need to see them as people who need Christ. And for all the shouting and yelling that oftentimes takes place, many of those people are confused 
They are hopeless and they are lonely. They're lonely because they don't have a family like you have. They don't have a church family like this. And so, in a sense, we have a great opportunity. You know, because back in the 1950s, you know, our country was full of cultural Christians who thought they had everything together and life was grand and good and surely God accepts me and I'm good with God. Well, we live in a very different context. We are surrounded by people who know they have problems and we have the answers in the Scriptures. So work to get to know them and love them and then tell them who God is and what God has provided for them in Christ. And then invite them to find their rest, their hope, their security in the only place where it is available, in the gospel of Christ and in a good relationship with their Creator. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for its relevance, its timelessness, and its impact. And Lord... We thank you today for the goodness of your design. And Father, I pray, Lord, that all of us in this room would trust the word of God. And Lord, that we would believe everything it has to say. And that God, we would be faithful to what it has to say. God, I pray for our young people. That Lord, your spirit would produce in them a deep resolve and a deep commitment to stand on the scriptures and to be faithful to you at any cost. Lord, I pray for maybe people in this room that are hurting and struggling and just feeling lost and empty, maybe overwhelmed with with their struggles. Lord, I pray that they would seek biblical help. And Lord, that, that they would run to Christ for the help and the encouragement and the strength that he alone can provide. And Lord, help all of us, even this week, to manifest Christ in all that we do. Help us to love well. Give us a vision for souls. And use us, God, to reach people for your glory and for the sake of your name. God, we thank you so much for your word and its truth. Lord, find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.